Hello, everyone, and welcome to um, M Pavilion on this beautiful uh, almost summer evening. Um, I'm Robert Buckingham, and on behalf of M Pavilion and the Naomi Milgram Foundation, I would like to welcome you to this very special architectural event, the third in a series of events devoted to the Bauhaus. Um, I'd also like to mention that this space, of course, has been a meeting place for thousands of years, um, and I think that's part of why it works so beautifully. Um, we acknowledge um, the Boonarong people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of the land in which we meet, um, and pay our respects to their land, their culture, uh, their elders and their ancestors. Um, I'd also like to thank all our cultural and educational partners for their involvement in uh, the M Pavilion um, program, and especially the City of Melbourne, the Victorian State Government through Creative Victoria, and the ANZ. Um, Naomi Milgram's vision for this space was very much for it to be a, design, a space for design and architectural debate and discussion. Um, and each year, a, a temporary pavilion is commissioned for these gardens uh, to be designed by a significant architect uh, and then gifted to the City of Melbourne. This year, um, our pavilion is designed by B. Joy Jane of Studio Mumbai, an Indian architect. And next year, you'll have to wait to find out. Ah, um, as a space for design, we're thrilled to be part of the launch of a major research project on the Bauhaus. Um, the project is supported by the Australian Research Council and is titled Bauhaus Australia, Emigres, Refugees and the Modernist Transformation of Education in Art, Architecture and Design, 1930-1970. And the people that we have gathered here, who are going to be introduced by Anne Stephen, our MC, um, over the next three years are going to be involved in, um, in a, a series of events um, exhibitions, commissions and publications to mark the centenary of the Bauhaus and its influence in Australia. Um, I'm delighted to welcome them all and Anne will introduce them, but I'd also like to make mention um, that we have a special guest, Penelope Seidler, who spoke this afternoon um, about her experiences um, and also about her life and collaboration with Harry Seidler, um, the, the legendary um, Australian architect, uh, probably our most famous modernist architect, um, a key exponent of the Bauhaus ideals in Australia, and also a central figure as part of the research project. So I'll now hand over to Anne Stephen to introduce the panel. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Uh, we're in fact incredibly grateful to Robert Buckingham and the M Pavilion for inviting us to launch Barhaus Australia here over the last night or so. It's been um, a perfect way to tell the world, beginning with Melbourne, about our really exciting new project. And you will he be hearing much more about it leading up to the centenary of the Barhaus in 2019. Just today, we've talked to some of our partners, the University of Melbourne, Potter, and Melbourne University Press. So we will be bringing to you a rolling series of exhibitions that will roll down Swanson Street and then proceed across the eastern seaboard uh, with many partnerships. But to just introduce this uh, rich lineup of uh, professors of 
uh, Barhaus Masses, Philip Goad from the University of Melbourne, many of you would know, Harriet Edquist from uh, RMIT, Isabel Wunsch, our Berlin-based uh, professor from the University of Bremen, and Professor Andrew McNamara from Queensland University of Technology. All of them have brought their rich knowledge to this project. So it's a very exciting thing working together on a book and uh, several exhibitions. And, and you also should say where you're from. Ah, right. I'm, <laughs> I'm from the University of Sydney. I'm the senior curator. Thanks, Philip. So I'm going to throw, first of all, one at a time, starting with you, Philip, mm -hmm. to give us a bit of a thumbnail sketch about how you see the project illuminating architecture in Australia in terms of the Barhaus project. Sure. Uh, look, f first I should say that we're looking at emigres and emigres that really arrived in Australia, uh, some, some of them in the 1920s, a very small number, but all the way through the, uh, particularly in the late 30s, through into the late 1940s and then into the 1950s. And many of them came by choice. A lot came because they were refugees uh, and some came because they were in exile. Others came, came because they were displaced, essentially after World War II. And then in the 50s, some came as, by choice again, as migrants. So there's a whole diversity of emigres coming. In architecture, uh, it's very interesting to think about the Bauhaus in Australia because as an idea, it was often seen with antagonism, particularly by some people in Sydney, I should say, <laughs> Florence Taylor and others yes. who thought the Bauhaus was uh, somehow uh, not particularly uh, sensible. And they, they closeted the Bauhaus with the work of Frank Lloyd Wright and the work of the Griffins even at some point when they fell out with Walter Burley Griffin and Marion Marnie. Uh, and for the most part, architectural education in the, the 20s and 30s was based around the British model, which was essentially based on a French model of an atelier system of design education where you competed amongst colleagues in a Beaux-Arts system and it was about composition, taste and aesthetic judgment. And while the idea of the modern came through many of these young architects travelling during the Great Depression and also working for some great firms in the UK who were modernist, committed to modernism, in the teaching of architecture, modernism came late in the 1930s, let's say to the Melbourne University Architectural Atelier, but it, it infiltrated more as a form of composition as one of a series of methods of composition. Would so, you uh, point to particular figures who were particularly yes. crucial? Yeah. yeah. So Roy Grounds, who designed the National Gallery of Victoria, came through the Atelier system, uh, a very sophisticated uh, compositional uh, uh, designer who was at home in designing in the Georgian, as he was with the modern. So modernism was essentially a style. And that was how it was taught in large part in from about the mid-1930s in the Atelier system. In architecture, 
than the the true Bauhaus influence. It comes with a figure like Harry Seidler, who comes via the Harvard Graduate School of Design, where he's taught by Walter Gropius and then does a period at Black Mountain College studying under Joseph Albers. But for the most part, an idea of the European idea of modernism comes post-war, when you find there are European emigres teaching at the University of Melbourne and also at RMIT. And they bring not necessarily direct Bauhaus, but a sense of what modern might mean in Europe at the time. And and they have all been trained in Europe. In Europe, yeah. Yeah. So people like Fritz Geneva, who taught at the University of Melbourne, Viennese trained and comes and takes over the first year program of Melbourne Melbourne University Mm. around 1948. Uh, I might leap to Harriet, just in terms of can you sketch out the design response to Mm. Bauhaus in terms of RMIT? Um, It is very sketchy. Uh, This is a work in progress. But what's interesting about RMIT is it's a very different system of education from, say, Melbourne University. It it comes out of a South Kensington model of education in in England, uh, whereby you have all these um, disciplines together. So you don't have an architecture, as at Melbourne Uni, you don't have an architecture school sitting you know, on its own, in its own lovely building. Yes. Um, you have squashed into building two um, in, from 1917 on, onwards when building two was opened, you've got the School of Applied Art. Now, that school was set up and it's all over the documentation to produce uh, students who can work in industry. RMIT has always been about art and design for industry and that build, that. Um, art school was built for that reason. So it was always about applied art. So um, you have uh, painting, but you've got sculpture and you've got um, jewellery and ceramics, and in that art school is architecture. So it's, it's actually very different, and they shared a whole lot of common subjects. So there was a common first course. Now that while there was one in the Bauhaus, this didn't come from the Bauhaus. It came from a different tradition. It came from the sort of British tradition. So I'm actually trust trying... This is quite difficult to do because the documentation is really bad and trying to tease out the various um, curricular changes. But one of the interesting things I'm working on for three architects and a designer who came out in the 30s and were all snapped up by the head of, of um, the Applied Art School, Harry um, Harold Brown, um, in the as after the Second World War, and one was Frederick Romberg, who who taught mm. history and theory, but then he mm. went up to Melbourne Uni, and I don't actually know what he taught at RMIT. Another one was Ernest Fuchs, who was really interesting. He was a incredibly well educated in in Vienna, and he was a town planner. He brought town planning into RMIT, and I think mm. probably a first. Mm. in a mm. university, university or mm. a, a system in in the country. Mm. Um, and he taught that for about six or seven years. Then there was a very mysterious man I'm digging around in called Frederick Stern, who was brought in to teach interior design, which is part of this whole amalgam. We, we constructed the first interior design course in the country. Mm. 
and he made that into a proper diploma course, a four-year course in the late 40s and was very, um, and he was very popular, um, but they all had to negotiate the existing program. Um, and then the final one, I think it, I'm finding more direct Bauhaus sort of um, evidence is uh, quite a charismatic figure who was um, trained, insofar as he was trained in Germany in textiles, called um, um, Gerhard, Gerhard Herbst. You might have heard of him. And he worked for Prestige Textiles when he came in 1938, 39, served in the AIF, the labour camp during the war, and then after that went back to text, uh, Prestige and introduced some very innovative techniques and um, so forth at Prestige and then came to teach at RMIT. And what's interesting is he wasn't that well educated in Germany. He didn't go beyond, he didn't go into tertiary education, for example, but he became a brilliant art director. He recognised talent, he brought talent in. And what I'm finding is that the two Bauhaus people who really inspired him, he, uh, he, might not, he didn't meet Joseph Albers, he might have met Moholy Noj, you know, in transit somewhere in Berlin. Um, but those two people in Melbourne, their books really inspired him and you can see it coming through the student curriculum. So that's what I'm really working on at the moment is how... Um, and the thing about he was anti-industrialisation, um, he was about things he talks about now are what we're talking about. It's about the human being and our relationship to the environment. That's what he's on about. Um, but his students went on to design for GMH, <laughs> these huge corporations that he was quite sort of hostile about. So anyway, it's a very interesting story. And there's one other person, just one other person in Queensland who we've just found out about, Marcella Hempel, who actually is a wonderful weaver and she was trained by a Bauhaus weaver. So we'll be looking at her as well. And Harriet, those figures, your, your collection, your design archive yes. at RMIT yes. is rich in that material. That's right. And that's really, I, I guess, what my place here is that at the RMIT design archives, we've got archives relating to all the people I'm researching. And that is very valuable for us. It means that we can get that research out and um, really show what the point of having an archive is. Mm. It's not sitting in boxes, it's actually using mm. it mm. to tell this story, which I think will be very interesting. And there are lots of wonderful crossovers because Herbst, in fact, there's a wonderful collection of his at the posters powerhouse. at the Powerhouse yeah, and the, also at Melbourne University. Mm. That's right, yeah. So, Isabel, I'm going to skip you for the moment oh. and <laughs> we'll come back to you, but Andrew, uh, what forms... In terms of art, do you see the Bar House taking and transforming in Australia? Okay. Um, as you can see, the term Bar House Australia is a bit of a provocation because there's not a simple story of all these Bar House people that came here. It's filtered some people directly, some people indirectly, and um, it's this gradual process. So one of the focus points for all of us is across design, architecture and education, uh, and the arts in education. And this process happens at different places at different points of time, but it follows, like Harriet says, it's a breakdown into what you would call more interdisciplinary focus, but also a breaking down into colour studies or material studies. Mm. Then you build up again and you, in the process you put different... Um, 
disciplines together. And you'll see when we show the film at the end that Hirschfeld Max uh, colour light plays are an attempt to do that. They use the new technology of the day, which is the light bulb, and they link it up and he talks about it being uh, a type of abstract art in motion. So that's what he's trying to create, and it's sort of an abstract cinema. So talk about that later. But that's the sort of crossovers that occur. But what happens in education is this transformation where you get a move. Well, the atelier system is very similar for fine arts education, and it's very closely linked to teacher education. And there's a gradual breakdown. And a lot of this happens really after the war. Some of these people may have been here 10 or 20 years, but the effects begin to really focus in the sometimes the 50s, 60s, 70s, and you gradually get a later version of this Bauhaus style with sort of a cross between breaking things down, uh, working across disciplines and um, putting it all together in some other different way. Yes, I mean, I remember when you first started talking about this project and one of the really striking uh, things you had to say was how while the account of modernism in Australia is generally being described in terms of French cubism mm. et al., in fact, it was the post-war refugees, the immigres, who actually came here in person mm. who had such a profound impact on Australian artists, designers and architects because they were literally our teachers. They were here, yeah. They were here. So the big difference is usually the stories plot against French art and then say we're mm. late. But actually, here in this case, you get this... When we look at materials, there's colour charts across the arts and in design and in mm. architecture. So you see this... So what happens, basically, these people are here. It's, it's a number of stories, really. It's not just an art design architecture story. It's a great story of Australian migrant history. It's mm. a period of first real major influx on mass of refugees and they have an incredible influence and impact on our culture so it's a story worth remembering particularly today mm. it's also an educational story and also across our various different fields this story has been told in the professions but in pieces and so there are little articles and bits and pieces places so our main ambition, I guess, was to pull this story together because mm. it just hasn't been told, but it is a very, as you mm. say, direct impact. They could go to mm. these people and say, what was Kandinsky about or mm. something. But it's, it's also emigres teaching at the professional and tertiary level, but they're also teaching in high schools yeah. Yeah. and mm. primary schools. Mm. Mm. And someone like Inga King talking about how you're teaching perhaps art to kindergarten mm. age children. Mm. So it's it's this migrant story across yeah. all levels of education mm. about the importance of art. And if I can bring Isabel in, in terms of that particular effect, in terms of Hirschville Mack and his role in art education, uh, particularly in Victoria, if you can sketch out a little bit of the legacy that he brought to Victoria, Geelong yeah. Grammar, <laughs> Victoria. <laughs> yeah, I guess he's our very best example, yeah. which also, or who also justifies uh, the Bauhaus Australia, because, I mean, he is one of the early students at the Bauhaus. He enrolls actually already in 1919, so when everything is set up in Weimar, 
And so he has a career as one of the early students, does the uh, preparatory course with Eden. He is very much interested in uh, teaching. So teaching is his true calling. And he mm -hmm. basically does art on top of a teacher's education. And so he follows the Weimar Bauhaus through its whole uh, existence in Weimar up to 1924. Uh, and then he doesn't move with the Bauhaus to Dessau, as almost all his fellow students do. Albers is a good example. He is then basically the young students who completed the Bauhaus education, move with the Bauhaus to Dessau and become then junior masters. And so he would have been a perfect example to become a junior master, but no, he stays in Weimar and actually goes to a reform school in a small place, Wickersdorf, uh, which is really doing reform education at basically at the uh, primary school level, uh, also involves lots of kind of project work and workshops and those things. He is in charge of the carpentry workshop and brings a lot of uh, influences from the, the early Bauhaus, so building kites and having lantern processions and those things which basically throughout his life he is doing. He then eventually also teaches color theory at the Arts and Craft College, which is the follower institution in Weimar. And then throughout the difficult uh, late 1920s, early 1930s, when modernism really falls out of favor and basically everyone who pursues modernist art in Germany uh, is more or less on the way to being labeled degenerate. Uh, then he teaches at pedagogical uh, colleges in smaller towns in Germany, so in Frankfurt Oder and in Kiel, and so really gets involved in teachers' education and uh, what are the fundamentals in terms of art education for teachers, so that's then basically done on all levels. So he really develops this for the primary level, so school uh, children should really just kind of experiment and work with uh, materials and explore uh, and draw and, and be very kind of creative and given the space to develop. While on a secondary level, they should do this slightly more systematically, looking at specific materials or doing specific exercises. And then, of course, on a tertiary level, then having this kind of more professional training. And so he does this essentially in Weimar and then basically throughout Germany. And in 1933, he goes to England and there he continues this. And he also actually has a very successful kind of uh, side business in terms of uh, getting uh, uh, pedagogical toys produced. Uh, so that's something which is also very much from the early Bauhaus to have uh, toys which are then basically done from certain materials and give uh, really kind of also for all the senses the training and also feel for materials and uh, textiles and uh, different kind of uh, senses. And then, and also kind of works in social projects uh, for uh, yeah, unemployed minors and uh, other kind of social projects. And that's kind of another dimension of the Bauhaus. There's always this kind of very social commitment. Mm. Uh, early on, that's of course, education is a very strong part of this, but also kind of social housing becomes a big issue mm. in the late 1920s. So basically art is a, a form of, I guess, social intervention and of bettering society. So art is really taken an active part. That's from the very beginning of the Bauhaus in building basically uh, post-war Germany after the First World War, but then also for Hirschfeld Mark, it becomes very important after the Second World War. So basically, uh, art education is at the core of a democratic edu or the development of a democratic country. And so when he eventually comes, then, I mean, he's, he's in England and basically misses to go to uh, the US at the right time, and so basically gets deported as an enemy alien uh, to Australia. And so he basically starts and also out in the camp already kind of, yeah, basically doing uh, teaching on the side, I would say, or basically just organizing everyday life or make things uh, work and gets then actually uh, t uh, uh, hired by um, 
for Geelong by uh, Darling, uh, who is interested in reform education. And of course, uh, he is also very adaptable. I mean, to me, always the most impressive is that in Germany, I mean, elite schools is a certain social class, but the social class who goes to the elite school in Geelong has nothing to do with what you would expect in terms of kids and their parents in Germany. I mean, so uh, totally different uh, social environments. But there he really kind of continues where he had already developed the blueprint uh, early on that basically, yeah, you have the shoeboxes Mm. Even under under very uh, kind of sparse conditions, you can still do certain things, and mm. it should not be defined by social class. Kind of what kind of educations you give children, and then he really gets very much involved in terms of the uh, development of teachers' education in. Uh, Victoria, and he's very proud to report that, yeah, now Bauhaus is basically on all uh, the secondary level kind of uh, curricula, but also he's very much committed to, to training for social workers. He gives lots of talk, art therapists. Uh, so he, I mean, it's really, he puts it on a very broad base so that it becomes art education as a, something fundamental uh, in all forms of uh, education. So that's where he is really kind of putting this very strongly and also always himself Basically, as a teacher, he is someone who facilitates and not who basically, he's not a great master who puts his big name everywhere, so he's, I guess, on the opposite end to Gropius to a certain degree. Uh, but he is the one who really makes things happen for others. And that's something which is very important. And so the, the big label is art education, and he is somewhere who does it, but it's not as the artist who is the master, and then basically he has some followers and students. And Philip, you have done certain work on the role of uh, progressive education in terms of architecture and... Yep, that's right. So I've, I've done some work on Kornong, which was an experimental progressive school out at Warrandyte, run by Clive and Janet Neild. Mm. And Clive Neild worked at Geelong Grammar with mm. Darling, who, who sponsored mm. uh, Hirschfeld Mack. And uh, Clive and Janet Neild, who are the parents of the architect, mm. Lawrence Neild, mm. set up this school out in Warrandyte. They employ Daniela Vasiliev as mm. the art teacher. Mm. Uh, and they do projects about democracy in Sweden and things like that. And they uh, also uh, get the students to board out there mm. in buildings designed by the modernist architect Best Overend. Mm who's assisted by the Viennese emigre Fritz Geneva, mm. who then goes on to teach mm. at mm. the University of Melbourne. And Geneva is, is living out at Warrandyte with his wife, Katie, who's a potter. Mm. Uh, so there's all of this quite extraordinary cross-networking mm. of people. Mm. And the key in this school at at Warrandyte is the idea of psychoanalysis, mm. of uh, that we're all formed in our earliest years mm. as artists, as creative mm. thinkers, mm. Uh, as intellectuals, as participants mm. in, a, in a big sort of global mm. world. Uh, and so the, this idea of art and reform education mm. is something that's common not only here in Melbourne but in Sydney as well. You find that there are artists like Grace Cossington-Smith working with reform reformist educationalists. And in fact, I might I might throw to you, Andrew, because that role of um, art and therapy or art education and art therapy, uh, I can think of people like Eleanor Lang mm -hmm. in Sydney mm -hmm. and the Langers in Brisbane. Mm. 
Well, there is a connection. There is a connection. That, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm freezing here. I'm, you know, I'm the one from Brisbane. I'm, I'm the only one without a blanket. But, no, it's okay. I'm joking. I'm joking. It's okay. It's all right. You're sitting on it. Oh, <laughs> all that time. Um, Eleanor Langer was one of the earlier ones. She came 1930. The reason she came is a little bit obscure. She says it was Nazism, but Nazism was really just beginning. Yeah. Um, but she also, she did a few little things, but the main thing she did was write about modern art and she knew about it, so she was very mm. in that respect. But she doesn't really have much of an art career, but she moves into education, so mm. she's another good example mm. like that. And the other one, Gertrude Langer, who's a critic, one of the Australia's longest-serving critics throughout the period, of the post-war period, from about early 50s to time she dies at 84, she was a graduate of the Schwarzwald Schule in, um, in Vienna. So she also has this whole thing about reform education linked to artistic education and it carries through, but doesn't really get to have any institution to work it on. In fact, what she wants to do in Brisbane is build institutions. So that's what she really, her and her husband, Carl, focus on. Buildings. Mm. But Carl, yeah. Carl's, her husband is actually a professor of architecture at the University of Queensland. Yeah. So he has huge influence there mm. uh, from the 40s all the way through to his retirement. Yeah. And so <coughs> that that is the uh, body of uh, emigres and refugees, the first hand. But there, and, you know, figures like Seidler and the Langers. But there is then the second generation of their students, the uh, the Australians who were profoundly influenced by them, or you know who seized upon the idea of the bar house. And I'm just thinking we're talking tomorrow morning to the old elder artist George Johnson, who um, was inspired by the bar house and in fact started teaching at Foot. Footscray Tech in mm. the 50s to bring bar house ideas to Footscray Tech. Mm. You could not think of anything more class different to Geelong Grammar than Footscray Tech. And there are wonderful photographs in an article he writes about the bar house bringing that project where he does murals with the boys. Mm -hmm. But I just wondered whether each one of you might uh, point to some second-generation uh, artist, designer, architect who brings into the uh, mid-late 20th century the ideas of the bar house. Starting with Philip. Philip. Oh, right, thanks. <laughs> uh, look, it, it's interesting. At, at the University of Melbourne, you have Fritz Geneva from Vienna. Mm. You have Carl Hammerschmidt from the Royal Academy in Denmark. Zdenko Strzic from Zagreb, mm -hmm. who then goes on to have a, a, a quite extraordinary career mm -hmm. back in Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, you have Gerd and Renata Bloch, who are educated mm -hmm. at Karlsruhe. Mm -hmm. So all the graduates of, from the university mm -hmm. from the late 40s mm -hmm. through into the mid-60s mm -hmm had this extraordinary pedigree mm. of diverse European mm. modern mm. approaches to education. Uh, and it means, and also, as Harriet said, you have Frederick Romberg there, yeah. who's a tutor yeah. as well. And you also have John and Helena Holger, mm. Polish emigre mm. architects, mm. who are also mm. involved in some mm. of the tutoring. Mm. 
I think uh, it's difficult to say, you, you know, there's a career that shows the, the influence because Gerd Block was getting all of his students to demolish most of North Melbourne and put up high-rise housing uh, blocks. And uh, I think there was a sense that uh, many of those architects were true blue modernists uh, through to the, to the 60s. But it means that architects like Peter McIntyre will mm. have rubbed shoulders with these people. Mm. James Birrell, who went on to have a major practice in Brisbane, mm. rubbed shoulders with these people. Mm. Kevin Borland. Kevin Borland, likewise, who worked for Harry Seidler. Mm. So the... The, the interconnection mm. is is there. Stuart mm. McIntosh, who mm. did ESNA banks mm. all around the place, mm. uh, and the other thing is that Fritz Geneva taught the next generation of teachers. So he mm. taught the Bauhaus mm. method, although he was taught in Vienna. Mm. He taught the Bauhaus method to his students, and then the next first year master after Fritz Geneva was Hugh O'Neill. Mm. Hugh O'Neill then taught my generation. Oh. And mm. we all had Hugh O'Neill mm. in first year. <laughs> and we all did kites and lanterns. <laughs> and there, there is something about passing on a tradition, yeah. particularly yeah. in the first year, yeah. of understanding colour. We all had yeah. to paint poster colours and then articulate what red meant next to blue as opposed yeah. next to, meant to yeah. yellow. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it came yeah. all the way back to yeah. Johannes Itten's Vorkus mm. yeah. at the Bauhaus. Mm. Mm. Harriet, do you want to take up the ball? Um, <clears throat> well, what I've found interesting so far in my digging around in the um, RMIT context is I've been speaking to three um, pupils of Gerard Herbst. <clears throat> Gerard didn't die that long ago. And um, they, they're actually hilarious. One of them is particularly hilarious. He, he keeps on saying he can't remember anything. He didn't understand anything. He was told to read Lewis Mumford. He had no idea what this man meant, but he seemed very deep. And um, however, he's got this brilliant memory of what they were made to do, which, um, and all of them say that the real what um, Herbs taught them was to think independently, to think outside the box and not to accept what they're given, to always challenge the status quo. And they all remember that. And um, one very specific example of, of uh, thinking that Herbst used to make them, he very in an Alba's moment, he would give them a piece of paper leave the room until they had to make something out of it. And these kids, they were 18, all they wanted to do was draw cars. That's really what they wanted to do. And they left in this room with a bit of paper and they had to do... And they learnt. They learnt stuff. Um, but one thing that, um, that they did do was photography and they had to put together sort of um, slideshows and things like that. And Ken Folletta was telling me that some of this, this work that they did in presentation, exhibition and so forth was extremely valuable when, to, when he went to work for GMH down at Fisherman's Bend mm. when they had to present to clients the latest mm. Holden, whatever it was. All of these techniques of presentation mm. and, and professionalism really came to the fore. So I'm still sort of working it out, but they are all... Herbst was charismatic and in a way it mightn't have been... The, you know, the because he was making up the courses as he was going along, I think, but it was about 
how you think, how you, how you are in the world, how you develop a philosophy and how you deal with being sort of a human being in a, in a vastly changing technological environment. And I think that's really, that's what I'm getting from them. That's what he taught them. We are going to shortly watch Farvin Lixfield, Hirschville Mac's wonderful colour light play. But Andrew, I was wondering if you would like to free associate on the <laughs> uh, colour light uh, impact in terms of mid-20th century Australian art, those artists who might have identified mm. in their own work with that legacy? Mm. Um, okay, I'll just say a, a quick thing. The colour light plays are... Um, the f Do you want me to talk about that a little bit? Uh, or leave, it? leave it a little okay. while. <laughs> <laughs> the, the people are ready the to go to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> people want to get to the yeah, bar. They will, they will. Um, well, one of the best examples would be... Look, uh, why I was thinking about it was the... Uh, Gertrude Langer, when she reviews the bequest, says that Hirschfeld Max colour light plays. It's actually plural, so because there's a number of them set to mm. music. And um, she said that this is clearly the forerunner of kinetic art. So Anne's mm. right to place it as a sort of a... Move. It's sort of kinetic art before there is kinetic mm. art, if you like. So someone who would um, take up, it would be a link in the Australian legacy, would be a Polish emigre, uh, Stan Astoria Kukowski, who was in South Australia. Now, he actually, when he comes to Australia, um, does the poster for Hirschfeld Mack's um, uh, first Bauhaus show, was at Gallery A in Melbourne here, so it wasn't at a state gallery or anything like that. Hirschfeld, uh, Astoria Kukowski is involved in it. Astoria Kukowski comes to Australia and basically gets blinded by the light and decides that I'll make light my project. So he takes it up from the point of uh, colour light projection. So in Adelaide Festival, he does a whole building that's just checkered. Every window has a colour, so mm. it's like a monochrome. If you know the Gerhard Richter colour charts, it'd be like that, So mm. except a whole building. And then there was... a. Uh, an atmospheric effect where the whole sky went magenta-ish and because there was a, a volcanic um, eruption in Indonesia during this, so everyone sort of thought that uh, Astoria Kukowski had made Adelaide into a ready-made for this whole festival, and he had in a way. So, so this light thing then moved into... He wanted to do colour projections through computers and these big... Mm. amplifications of light and he gets into computer art and works with a dancer to do the thing where she, the dancer um, jumps on these pads that make music and so he's experimenting with a whole range of these sorts of things so he'd mm. be a very good mm. link and then mm. you can link between Astoria Kukowski to Hirschfeld back and um, you'd have De Maist and Wakeland mm. in Australia. So there's a whole tradition of this. Once you follow this path, you can see there's an alternative that goes through Australian art that follows colour light projections, but it's a different history, but it does come through putting this history together that you see that there is a continuity right up to today with, well, people like Ross Manning in yeah. Brisbane that you talk yeah. about who uses very lo-fi, like yeah. old fans or something like that to project For the all light. Mm. Yeah. yeah. To, you, yeah. to, again, project, but in a very cl 
funky lo-fi way. Yeah. Can I just make a, a c mm. comment that the connection with what I'm doing is quite interesting because when Stan first came to Mel uh, to Australia in 49, uh, 39, 49, 39. This is 49. Ostoya Yes. Yeah. He worked for Prestige mm. and he worked mm. for Herbst. Mm. And mm. in fact, there's a moment at Prestige because Herbst was quite a conservative designer, very mm. influenced by the British sort of textile mm. designer of the 30s and 40s, Henry Moore and that sort of stuff. Um, not Henry Moore wasn't conservative, but, you know, by that stage he was. Um, and something happens round about 1950, 1951, mm. when he's there, mm. and prestige takes off. Mm. And so there's this very interesting, and they invent all these new te mm. techniques. They do, they invent um, a technique of of um, screen printing photographs. And this is in 1949, mm. photographs onto textiles, and they have Janet Lee, her <laughs> face sort of on this textile. It's pop art. Mm. It's amazing. Mm. I just think, mm. where on earth does this mm. come from? But mm. that's just yeah. when he's there. So yeah. I'm trying to tease that out a bit yeah. to see what that mm. dynamic was. I guess um, it's a fresh injection too with Molly Nord's book coming out in 48. Yes. Yeah. So I think that's yeah. something yeah. Where, where it gets picked up and which yeah. is a, a fresh influence of something mm. which is already there. And, yeah. and we probably should say, or probably you should say, uh, something about Gallery A and the show mm. here in Melbourne, mm. which mm. was in many respects internationally unusual. Mm. There was mm. a an exhibition on the yeah. Bauhaus yeah. here yeah. in Australia in 1961. Yeah. Andrew's already alluded to it, but it was uh, really the impetus of Clement Meadmore, who many of you would know identified with um, large modernist metal sculptures. He was an RMIT graduate. He was a designer of chairs. Many of you know, would know those wonderful cord chairs. And... In 1959, Max Hutchison uh, invited him to become really a director of Gallery A up in Flinders Lane, and he clearly was very captivated by Hirschfeld Mack and used to go up. By that stage, Hirschfeld Mack had retired from Geelong Grammar, was living up in Healesville, and uh, Virginia Space, who's a... a a retired professor of art history was the lover of Clement Meadmore and she and <laughs> Clement used to drive up... I hope this up information doesn't come <laughs> out about us in no, 40 no, years' no, time. No, it's very important. <laughs> they used to drive up to Healesville and play with uh, Hirschfeld Mack's musical instruments right. and over that period he was invited to do the... the uh, 1961 Bauhaus exhibition, which uh, was really based on his own collection of prints and colour charts that he had first drawn or painted in 1922 and 23. Uh, in part, I understand, and Isabel, you might correct me, that they were to illustrate Kandinsky's lectures at the Bauhaus and also his own on colour. Yeah, it was a collaborative effort mm. in, in mm. terms of developing this colour seminar. And so Hirschfeld Mack recreated these colour charts because his own colour charts had been sent, he had sent them off to MoMA back in 1938 when 
uh, Gropius was doing an exhibition on the, the on the Bar House, and they had in fact ended up at Harvard, and so. Hirschfeld Mack now retired, took this opportunity, reconstructed them, showed his collection of early Barhouse print workshop prints, including Maholinage, Kandinsky, Clay, his own work. Mm. Uh, so Mark so it's, a, it's, a, it's a great big show, it's a big mm. show. for Melbourne, big show. Mm. including yeah. photographs by yeah. Wolfgang Sievers and it's opened mm. by Robin Boyd, who's mm. just done a TV show mm. about the Bauhaus as well. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And there's wonderful letters between Hirschfeld, Mac, Gropius, writing about this show and the excitement of on the opening night. Uh, People queued around the block to get in. Uh, it was very popular. Uh, yeah. mm. So... That's part of our legacy. Um, and the easy, interesting question is why Gallery A, a private gallery, mm. which was mainly design mm. up to that time, it's because the state galleries wouldn't show modern art mm. even up till mm. 1960s mm. in mm. Australia. So mm. the first show, Bauhaus in Australia, was at this private gallery in Melbourne. And I think I can now throw to you, Andrew, to a little description about Fabulousville. Mm. Okay. Between you and Isabel. Mm. Yeah, That's Isabel cool. will jump in where I okay. make mistakes. All miss. Uh, th there's another nice, fascinating footnote to that story. Uh, Hutchinson and Meadmore become very famous internationally, mm -hmm. and they're the ones, they, they take the gallery to mm -hmm. New York, and they're the ones who buy blue poles for Australia or broker the deal. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting mm -hmm. footnote mm -hmm. to that story. Um, okay, there's a film that you'll see as a recreation by these Viennese uh they're actually musicians, and they asked uh, one of Hirschfeld Mac grandsons to recreate this colour apparatus, which interacts. It's a big box, and you manipulate it to do colour projections, and they're colour light projections. He claims he originally got the idea for this. Um, well, the two sources really. Some students showed something vaguely similar with shadow plays in the. Bauhaus exhibition and then the first official Bauhaus show was um, coming up and they wanted to show something and um, he also said the other aspect was he went to a film and was silent film and they were showing he said the narrative was really insipid and um, very syrupy and wasn't interesting so he ended up watching the shadows on the wall and mm. around and the, when the figures went and you looked at it abstractly you could think everyone's sitting in this dark room and all this flickering light so this gave him the idea for this machine and he wanted to patent it and take it around to, uh, well, you know, there'd be things like cinemas or dance halls or it's sort of the forerunner of strobe lights. He was thinking about things like this. But this would be a whole of um, a type of little Gesamtkunstwerk where you put all a lot of different art forms together. So music, light, colour and also a bit of engineering, I guess. So there was this idea of projecting it onto the wall. So this is a recreation. There's only two of them. Another one's been recreated in for the Bauhaus uh, Museum in Dessau. And um, the first one that was a recreation after that was actually made, partly made in Melbourne. When Hirschfeld Mack was asked to go back to Germany, he recreated it. And then that first one's been lost. So there's two that only exist now, and it's a great ambition of ours to create one for Australia. So, And back in the 1920s, 
the Farben Lichtspiel was sh uh, shown alongside uh, Leger's Ballet Mécanique. So it was very much part of that European avant-garde interest in cinema in a interdisciplinary mode in which artists as much as um, filmmakers collaborated. And Viking Egglings diagonal symphonies yeah. in yeah. Berlin. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea was also to use it for advertising. That was kind of then to further yeah. develop it and, and yeah. use it for advertising. Mm. Now, we're very happy to run the film, but if there's any questions, this is your moment to <laughs> put your hand up. Otherwise, we're going to put on the film. Is it Anyone would like to ask any of the panel members a question? We're all freezing to death and want to see. <laughs> and can I just do an yes, ad for the Fuchs exhibition? Oh, yes. Uh, there's a big, well, a big, a, a, a major undertaking at the Ernest Fuchs House in North Caulfield from Thursday night onwards. If you go to the website of the Robin, Bo Robin Boyd Foundation, mm. uh, you can visit the Ernest Fuchs House and a whole lot of the archival material which uh, students up at the university have been able to collect with Professor Alan Pert. It's an opportunity to not only see an emigre architect's house, mm. but also see the installations done by the students and the marvellous collections mm. they've been able to access at RMIT Design Archives mm. through Harriet's uh, Goodwill. That sounds like a must. Yeah, That's, uh, it is. So it's uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, mm. and go onto the Robin Boyd mm. website. But mm. it's really an, an, a unique opportunity. Okay, I don't see any hands up. Let's cut to the films. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.